0: Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled, Honor Life, was given by Bill Dogtram and is the seventh in our series, Who We Are, Defining Community Through the Ten Commandments. We are uh, continuing on in the series that we're uh, calling Defining Community Through the Ten Commandments. and as we've been trying to say over and over again in the last uh, few times that we've, we've looked at this, we're about heading into the kind of the last half of this, of this series. The word commandments, again, does not appear in the text uh, of Scripture. It is the ten words, and these words, and, and tonight we'll, we'll get the, the kind of the real raw flavor of what all ten of them might have looked like in their original form, uh, because the commands from here on out, the words from here on out, are literally just one word in Hebrew. And we'll, we'll unpack that in a, in, a, in a few minutes. But um, it, it's, it, what God is, I think, attempting to do here is define community. Uh, and he is defining community by establishing boundaries within which community exists. So, for example, in, in your family systems, there are boundaries that are established so that you know where your family ends and a stranger begins, when, when the next door neighbor uh, uh, begins, so to speak. And you can define boundaries in a number of ways. Uh, you know, physical boundaries are, are, are easier to define, and, and there are legal boundaries and moral and so on and so forth. So here God is just saying, these are the 10 ways that you play the game. This is what the field looks like. This is, these are the parameters of our community as the people of God. And remember, he gives these, first of all, to the children of Israel who have been kind of birthed out of the womb of Egypt and been shaped for 430 years by that culture. And now they are in process of becoming the people of God. They have always been God's people, but now he is shaping them, forming them, framing them so that they can be a holy people, so that they can be helpful to the nations around them so that they can be helpful to the people uh, who are in need of the kind of culture, the kind of community that they are built to represent. So for God, this is an important uh, step in the process of forming. And why it's important for us today? Because if it was important for God then, I suspect that this is still important to Him. The way community gets defined. And and the one that we look at tonight is a, is a, is a critically important one. Uh, In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the first, the the so-called first table of the of the Torah, the first table of the way of life, Um, and the first one, first three rather, deal with uh, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The fourth one, which we talked about two weeks ago, is the one about Sabbath. is about loving ourselves with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember, Sabbath is not for God. Sabbath is for us. And so when we observe Sabbath, it enriches and, and brings life to us and enables us then as we turn the corner into that fifth word to honor those who gave us life in the first place. They are the ones who have, have given us a place in community. It is through uh, your mother and father, the text says, that you have an identity and a place in community so honor your past because if you don't honor your past your future is not available to you if you don't honor the past if you don't recognize it and celebrate it for what it is you will repeat it the only people who are capable of building on the past towards the future are those who embrace the past celebrate it and honor it and then move on those who ignore it even though they may never wish to Family systems theory suggests, and I think Scripture bears out, that those who do not deny their story, repeat it. Those who deny their past, repeat it. And in fact, this is a critical statement for this new community in two primary ways, one of which will introduce what I want to talk about uh, tonight. The first one is to suggest that Israel was the first nation in the history of the world that we have record of, that viewed time as linear, not cyclic, right? That viewed time as a sequence of events that was heading somewhere. Every other nation in the world in the ancient Near East, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Akkadians, all of the nations of the world up to this point have viewed life, you you, you see it even even in, in children's cartoons as this great circle of life, right? The, the view that, that, that it, what goes around comes around. And that whether it's re- reincarnation or karma or some other structure, essentially life ends up simply being a repetition. And that has very real implications. If you start the circle as poor, you will end the circle as poor. There is no escape from that circle. You start and end in the same place. If you happen to be a wealthy person, uh, a, a noble person, you start the circle here and, 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 and maintain that identity through there. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? And so this, this idea of a cyclic understanding of time, now all of a sudden the Hebrews come in and say, no, no, it is linear. It is going somewhere. It has destiny. It has direction. There is such a thing as a past. And that is what enables us to move forward to a future. It is possible, look at us, to start as slaves and end up landowners. It is possible for, to, 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 to start as, as nothings and nobodies and end up the beloved sons and daughters of God. It is going somewhere. The implications of that are are much broader than I can unpack tonight, but that was last week. So, which I didn't say last week because I ran out of time. Now I'm going to put it in this one. Now I'm going to run out of time on this one at the other end. The second thing, though, that is really critical for us to understand, I mentioned that Israel was shaped in that kind of womb of Egypt for 430 years. Egypt is a culture... Of death. I need you to think about that for a minute. Here we are thinking back now 5,000 roughly years ago, 2,500, 2,000 to 5,000 5, years ago. What do we know about Egypt? What do we remember? If I say that word Egypt, what is maybe one of the first things that comes into your mind? Pyramids. What are the pyramids? Tombs. They are the codification of a culture of death. Right? Now, what then is one of the first words that the children of Israel has as it reforms themselves after that birth out of the womb of Egypt and now the new community is being formed? Commandment number six is life. So... From a culture of death, they are being reframed and reformed as a culture into a culture of life. And even though it's stated in the negative, which I want to talk about tonight because it's very crisp and precise, nonetheless, the point that I've been trying to make throughout our whole conversation has been that these commands are not just negations of what not to do. They define the parameters within which the game is to be played, but they give enormous freedom to the context of life or the context of how the game is to be played. So the boundaries are established, right? But when you get on the field, amazing things can happen if you play the game. And that's what also is implied here as we as we sit with this. So as we as we continue to work through this, this first commandment, um, which we're... Go ahead and, and put that up for me. Um, is literally one word in Hebrew. It is a... Neg- uh, a, 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 a Um, preposition of negation with a simple statement, thou shalt not or don't murder. Okay. Now, the, the word murder here is very specifically chosen. Some of the translations will say thou shalt not kill. And while that is technically accurate, it misses the narrow use of this word. This is not a word that is used to describe other kinds of the loss of life at the hands of another. It's a word that is narrowly focused to those who have to, to the loss of life because of vengeance or greed primarily. So it is the taking of another's life because I want what he or she has or because they have done something to me that I feel warrants the loss of their life. So it's a cycle of revenge, it's a narrowly focused word. And God says, this is not going to define you as my people. You are not going to be people who are defined by vengeance. You are not going to be people who are defined by the loss of life because of greed. This is not who you are going to be. And I need you to think about this because we live in a culture of death. We live in a culture that is defined by revenge and greed. Would that be fair to say? That might be too extreme in some cases, but I think you, I want you to sit with that. Israel, starting from Genesis, uh, began very quickly by the fifth, sixth, seventh chapter of the book of Genesis to define itself by excessive revenge. Here you have seven generations removed from Adam. Seven generations generations, that's not very long, and you have a man named Laban who boasts, I have slain a boy for striking me. That's what happens when you give in to the cycle of revenge. It escalates because you will always pay back more than what you received. Jesus recognizing this takes this command and, and, and stretches it out and says, let's, let's get right to the heart of the motive. It's not enough just to not murder. I don't want you to hate either. I don't want you to be defined by the things that motivate people in other settings to murder. So don't commit murder is the, is the, is the, is the frame here. And again, it, this doesn't rule out Death by other means. For example, uh, those who are engaged in, in police work or though, uh, and in the course of their duties, in the course of their obligations, find it necessary for the protection of, and the maintenance of public safety to, to kill someone who is threatening the lives of others. Or somebody who is in the service of his or her country, assigned to war, and has, as a soldier, as a marine, as, a, as an army officer, a duty, an obligation to uh, put themselves in harm's way and to risk the possibility not just that they will be slain, but that they will have to slay. This command doesn't eliminate them, or doesn't, doesn't in the same way apply to them. I'm going to talk about how it might apply to them in a minute. It doesn't apply, for example, as well to things like capital punishment. To, to, to the execution of one who has slain another. The society re, ha, ha, has the possibility of capital punishment built into that. Not as a deterrence, primarily, but as punishment. Because persons, this, the text reads, are created to be the image of God. And if you take and, and, and willfully eliminate a person who carries the image of God, it's not about deterrence, it's not about revenge, it's not about payback, but there, there is only one punishment that is suitable for that kind of extreme violence, and that is capital. Now, I need you to understand that when the New Te- Old Testament frames this, it is very careful because it even respects the life of the murderer. That life is equally valuable. And so we are not going to take it hastily. We are not going to take it without appropriate measures. There is no such thing, for example, in the Old Testament as circumstantial evidence leading to capital punishment. It can only be executed as a result of the eyewitness, independent eyewitness of two two witnesses who need to be prepared to cast the first stone. So it is a fairly narrow application. And I realize that in talking about some of these things, we're saying, wait, this just says don't murder. We don't want to talk about capital punishment or war or peacekeeping. You got to because that 's the framework within which this is understood he 's trying to say to us, "Life is valuable, life is important and, and and the implications of that are very simple. If you are a police officer, if you are a military uh, uh, man or woman in, in any of the branch of the services the the part of the part of the struggle for those who put their lives on the line for our freedom, for our liberty, for our our uh, our case around the world is that uh, the 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 built in hesitation to pull the trigger when your sights are on one that you have defined as enemy is often so great that part of the training exercises training exercise is is an attempt to dehumanize the enemy to turn them into something less than a person like you so that when you are in a moment of conflict you don't think of that as being with another person you think of it as being with the enemy do you, do you see because if you if you if you take this seriously and don't do that then that split seconds hesitation may result in your, the loss of your life, or your company's life, or your uh, the, the 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 city you're defending, in in extreme cases. With me, uh, for example, I, I don't know if any of you saw the HBO um, a miniseries called I think it was just called Pacific. Here it was talking about the war in the in the Second World War in the Pacific uh, uh, theater of operations, and I only watched the the first uh, the first one of that that. Uh, that series. It was powerful in its depiction of, of of the training that the Marines in this particular instance needed to go through. And and how how the Japanese were demonized and turned into creatures, not persons. Right? Same thing happened when we went to war against the Germans. Same thing happened. And, and the rationale is very clear and very simple. If you don't view, if you view them as like you, you are much less likely to pull the trigger when you have to. Right? And, and so part of this, this series was the depiction of a, of, a, of a young man from, I think it was farm boy from Nebraska, who in the, in the course of a pitched battle, recognized in the face of his enemy himself, here is a man with a wife, here is a man with kids. Here's a man who is just like I am. That's the realization. And and the truth is, this command says, we need to care for our soldiers who have become wounded themselves as a way of protecting us. Because that dehumanization that occurs doesn't go away. A lot of the, the post-traumatic stress syndrome, a lot of the, uh, of the, the consequences of being in the, in the theater of war, coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever else conflict ensues, is simply because the mind has been damaged by the training that was necessary to enable them to do their job in many instances. And the readjustment, is sometimes catastrophic in its painfulness. It's one of the very is, is, is one of the reasons why we need to we need to be praying for our, our 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 men and women who are in the armed forces. Now I need you to tell I need you to know that this text also is what people will use to say, then I am going to become a pacifist. Not for any reason am I going to take up arms against any other person. And I want to say to you, those folks are our brothers and sisters, as well as our Marines and our sailors and our soldiers. And the, the, the kingdom of God is big enough for pacifists and warriors. Our care is still governed by this. Their belief in the value of life leads them to that position. The Marines' belief, the members of the Air Force, Belief in the value of life leads them to this decision. Do do you see the the tension that we work out here? So this this simply says, here's the rules. Don't murder. Now, here's the danger. You can become so damaged in the taking of life that you forget that person on the other side is a human being like you. Then in any other circumstance you could sit down and have, a, have an espresso at a coffee shop in Paris with that man, with that woman. This is one of the things, one of the stories that comes out of the Second World War that just is fascinating to me. C.S. Lewis talks about it and others have written about it, uh, where uh, on, on one side of the valley, uh, you have the German uh, army camped, and on the other side of the valley, you have the uh, allies camped. And they have declared a ceasefire for Christmas Eve. And strangely enough, hearing through the night sky from the other side of the camp, each of them hears the same Christmas carols being sung by the enemy. They join together in the center of the valley, not just soldiers, but men far away from home, far away from families, far away from everything that gives their lives meaning. And in that moment, enemies become fellow warriors. The ceasefire only lasted through Christmas, but it was a reminder to all who were there that what we are doing, we do carefully. What this word says to us is that those who are charged with the possibility of the taking of life, need to have their souls cared for well because they put themselves in a place where damage can be done. Right? And so it's, it's part, of, I think, of, of what we're, we're, we're needing to, to, to deal with here deeply. So that this word suggests that even those who, the police officers who find themselves in, in a pitched battle need to be governed as much as possible by a respect for the life of the person, even the one who's shooting at them. Now, that's very difficult. I don't know that there's any more, any more occupation, any more difficult occupation than being a police officer or being a, a, a military, uh, in, in the military. For this, these these very reasons, I've cared for a lot of them over the last 35 years of my pastoral ministry. I've had half a dozen cops in my congregation throughout that whole period of time. And their their marriages suffer, their kids suffer, their friendships are almost always going to be with other cops, because especially if they've been involved in the high intensity uh, of... Uh, I had one, one guy who was on the scene... Um, uh, in in a hostage situation that resulted in the death of the hostage, the death of the hostage taker, and three of his officers. How do you care for somebody whose respect for life is so high, but whose training forbids him in that moment to enter into that pain? There's a tearing. And this text says, we got to put it back together. So, does that, does that make sense? Any any questions or comments on this? For a minute, yeah. What happens to a jerk with both? Same thing. It, right? Yep. It's the same same dynamic where you. The question Jerry's asking is a really important one. What if what happens when somebody who is a convicted felon, a convicted murderer, who on the presence of eyewitness testimony is now subject to possibly the death penalty, and you know that he has embraced Christ, perhaps in his imprisonment. And what you end up with is a situation like Paul said. No, the the reason the laws of the land exist is to carry out this form of justice and judgment. And the fact that he or she has become Christian doesn't mitigate the state's role to carry out its obligation and its duty, you know, it's a difficult one, isn't it? How you all doing? It gets better, it really does. It's like, oh, gee, <laughs> that's all just <laughs> okay. But anyway, the reason I needed to say that is because we have to talk about where the where the out of court. Out of bounds roads are right. We need to know where where that is. So it's 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 important for us that we recognize then that that the the honoring of life life has to has to influence the discussion then over all forms of the ending of life, whether it's it's uh, euthanasia or abortion or some other form of the ending of life. We have to make some very important and thoughtful and Considered decisions about those kinds, especially when we have a medical profession that has figured out how to keep people alive without keeping them alive. How do we negotiate that? Now, this text here is not dealing with that specifically, but it informs it in the sense that says life is of such a value that we need to honor it and respect it. May I suggest to you, that doesn't always mean prolonging it. Sometimes the most honoring thing you can do in a situation is to let someone go. How are you doing? This is a young congregation, so you're not going to have to deal with that for another 10, 15 minutes. Okay. Now, having said all that, the other thing that this, I think this command, this word rules out of court is systemic murder. And what I mean by that is the systems that are constructed by governments and the policies of governments that systematically deny people the basic needs for their existence. It is a crime of the millennium when we look at the fertility of sub-Saharan Africa, for example, with its capacity to feed not only its own people, but many of the nations of the world. So rich is the soil in that region, in many of the parts of that region. And yet, you look at a country like Zimbabwe, in which there are are no basic foodstuffs on the grocery store shelves at all, none. It's not like, which one of the 18 balsamic vinegars will I choose? It's, there's nothing on the shelf. Zimbabwe, prior to the recent transitions, was a rich and vibrant, thriving agricultural economy. And as a result of the, I will use the language, murderous reign of a leader, his own people have become political pawns in a game of chicken with the rest of the world. And I think this command says no. No. This is not appropriate. This is wrong. And we who are the people of God, while we can't do anything necessarily about it politically, can do something far more powerful about it prayerfully. How are you doing? So that's, this is included, included within that framework, and I want you to, to, to give consideration to, to some of that. Okay, so that's, all of the, that's where the, the boundary markers are. Let's talk about how to play the game a little bit more. The first thing that we need to understand is that this text says and and creates the space within the the liberty for which life is lived as a glorious riot of wonder. This is what the text says. It It is crazy that God has made, and I'll just use flowers for a minute, so many hundreds and thousands of varieties of flowers. I don't know them all. And some of them nobody has ever seen. They thrive in mountain meadows, for example. And I'm just using this as an example. But thrive in mountain meadows where nobody but God and the angels and the birds that fly over see them. What is the point of that? The point of that is to talk about the culture of life. It is riotous, it is wonderful, it is expressive, it is filled, it is out of control. If you want order, go to a cemetery. Human life is disordered and chaotic and vibrant in its variety. This command says, honor that, celebrate that. This word says human life is of inestimable value because we are created in and to be the image of God. Life cannot be explained. You don't understand the value of life simply by synthesizing the chemical components of a human body. So much carbon, so much hydrogen, so much nitrogen. You don't, at the end of that chemical analysis, have a clue what life is. Life is is bigger than the sum of its parts. It's greater. It has a mystery to it. It has a wonder to it. It has something that is worth entering into. It is of inestimable value in its uniqueness, in its its precision, in its irreducible complexity. Persons are of value. Because they are created to be the image of God. And this command, this word says, honor that, celebrate that, get behind that, support that in whatever form you can, whatever you do, don't try and limit the the chaos that is life, especially in somebody else and even more in yourself. Because the life that we most frequently dishonor is our own life. We stand in front of a mirror whether it's a mirror in which we look at our physical body or our intellectual mind or our, our, our emotional state or whatever and, and we use the language that says I wish I were more like that's dishonoring to the life that is yours. You with me? That fundamentally says I can be a lively person if I'm somebody else. And God's saying, oh, gee, I already got one of those. How about if you show up? Because I don't have anybody like you. You're the only one I got. I threw away the mold after I made you. You're the prototype. Can you just try and get you right? I'll help. I'll help. But I'm not going to help you be somebody else. Will you at least honor the life that's yours, your creativity, your giftedness? If you can't sing, don't sing. It's okay. Don't say, I'll be somebody when I can sing. You with me? Are you guys just going to stare at me? All right, I know I messed up with the first part of this thing, but I I thought by now we'd have somebody on board here. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's enough. Um, but anyway, but we, we do it physically, right? If I were taller, if I were, were bigger or, or, or shorter or skinnier or, 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 or faster, if I were a better athlete, then I could really live. No, no, you couldn't. If you want to do those things because you're somebody, great. But don't do them so that you'll become somebody. You are someone. Your life is of inestimable value. It is enough that occasioned the God of the universe to take on human form and come and walk with us, tabernacle with us. So precious was human life, even your life, that He came and dwelt within and among us so that He could redeem, not so that you could be somebody else, but so that you could be fully yourself. Jesus does not want to give you somebody else's life. He wants to give you your life. And abundantly. He doesn't want to give you the desires of somebody else's heart, not even somebody else's heart for you. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. And he is, a, he is, he is, he is bound to that journey. So the first thing that we get come out of here is that, is, is that life is this place of wonder, that persons are of irreducible worth and complexity. The, 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 the flawed calculus that makes one person of greater value than another is, 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 is horrific and must be pushed back against based on this word. That, that because somebody occupies a position or because somebody drives a certain car or because in some neighborhoods they wear certain clothes, or because they have a certain position or a job or something, they are of, therefore of greater value than the person who slept under the bridge last night. Or because this group has all of the chromosomes working and this group doesn't. This group is more important than this group. This group is more valuable than this group. And this command says no, you guys do not have the capacity to make those kinds of decisions. I will decide. Your job is to honor life, to celebrate it. I find it fascinating, for example, and and the crowd this morning didn't like it very much. Well, they, they were polite, but, you know, I can tell. But I'm going to try again, because you guys have already written it off, so we're going to go ahead and give it a shot anyway. I find it fascinating that we do not know the Pharaoh's name, but we know the names of the two midwives who... Guaranteed Israel's survival in Egypt. Pharaoh, the most, arguably the most powerful man of the most powerful nation in the history of the world up until that point. And we don't know his name from scripture. But Shifra and Puah, 5,000 years later, now you know the names of two nobodies Hebrew midwives who became midwives because they weren't anybody in the Hebrew culture. They had no husband. They had no children of their own. They were midwives. They were nothing and nobody, and now you know their first names. I find that fascinating, because what tells me something about the God who inspired the text of Scripture, He knows the nobodies. And when it's important to His story, He's very happy for you to know the nobody. But just because you're the Pharaoh doesn't mean you're somebody. And just because you're nobody doesn't mean you're nobody. This is critical for us because we do the same thing. We do exactly the same thing. We say that the person who lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is somehow more important, somehow of greater value than the person who slept under the Fifth Street Bridge. And we're wrong. This word says honor, value, celebrate life in any and all of its extremes. We do not have the capacity to make that evaluation. Life is not a commodity, the value of which is determined by social consensus. The, the, the reason uh, that Mother Teresa devoted the, the bulk of her life to the, to the gutters and the ash heaps and the, and, and the trash of Calcutta was because people were of value. In, 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 a, in a country where, uh, uh, where it was often inconvenient to, for, for a, a, a baby to be born and to be brought into a family, and where a mother couldn't afford the cost of an abortion, especially if she had a baby girl, she would abandon that girl in the gutters of Calcutta. And the Sisters of Mercy would go around behind and every morning collect The infants, some of whom still umbilical cord attached. And would care for them and love them. Not necessarily because they were going to live and become viable, but because they were valuable as they were. Similarly, at the other end, the aged who would be abandoned on the the burning trash heaps outside the city as a result of AIDS or leprosy or some other disease and their families simply had nothing else to do with them and they abandoned them because in that culture life is cyclic and therefore largely meaningless and worth less. Mother Teresa's mission if you read her book was that nobody should die unloved. She got it. We're invited to that kind of celebration of the value of life, because we don't get to choose which life to honor. We don't have the capacity to make those kinds of decisions. Life is precious because it's a gift. So what do we do with this? First of all, we've got to live. We've got to live. We can't, we've got to stop making apologies. We've got to enter in to, to, to our own lives. We've got a. Maybe we could just get a new tattoo that says "No Excuses Living." Right? Can we just say that part of what this word requires of us is that we stop making excuses for not living? There's nobody better at this that call us to our better selves than our poets, our artists, our writers. We need to support them. I, I, I love what the scientist does. I love the people who do the analysis. I love the people who do the, the. But for every scientist, we need five poets to keep the balance, because we just love the technology and we really believe that the technology is going to be our savior. It is not. We need the poet to remind us we're more than a collection of parts. We need the artist who with the skillful line on the, on the canvas can remind us that there's something deeper and richer and more powerful to life than what can be synthesized and attest to. We need the sculptor who can form an image in a, in a place in, in Florence where hundreds of years later people still stand in awe at the power of the human being this, um, this semester in, in, in my spiritual disciplines class, every semester I send students off to a, uh, uh, a nature retreat and ask them to go to a place of great beauty and just sit and meditate on, on, the, on the beauty around. So a lot of them go down to the wedge at Newport or down to the beach or up into the mountains if they have that capacity. Some of them uh, go over to T. Winkle Park where there's a beautiful duck pond. and some, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely thing. Included in my nature meditation this year, I'm thinking of sending them to South Coast Plaza and asking them to follow around for 10 or 15 minutes until they get freaked out. (laughs) One of the real wonders of nature, a human being. Why is it that we celebrate the duck and not the person? This command says... Persons are worth reflecting on. Are worth thinking about. And it's the poet. It's the artist. It's the writer. It's the sculptor. It's the storyteller that helps us to see what's true beyond the facts. This word challenges us with that. Can I also just say that this word says we've got to figure out how to get along. God has taken murder off the page. It's no longer available to us. So what are you going to do with people you disagree with? His suggestion is that you get along, that you make space at the table like he has made space at his table for people with whom you disagree. I want the garden to be a place where people of all kinds of political persuasions can come and argue and be brothers at the end of the conversation. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I'm Canadian, so who, what do I care? I mean, you don't know, they don't want to know what I think. But I think it's a tragedy and a violation of this text that there are some parts and some places that have formed the wrong opinion that to be Christian is to belong to a certain party. This text says no. You've got to figure out how to get along because those guys are going to be living right next to you In the kingdom of the heavens. Play nice. You with me? I think, as well as this, we need to understand that we've got to stop dishonoring our own lives. We've got to embrace the gift God has given us in us. Go ahead, Kev. The first place you got to start is accepting who He's created you to be, which is His beloved Son. You will never be less than that. Now, what you're getting at is how do I live more fully out what He has believed in, right? He has called you precious. He has called you beloved. He has called you His chosen and precious Son in whom He is well-pleased, right? That's all true. Now, how do I live out that reality? That's the real question you're asking. And the first thing we've got to start to do is soak in things like this. Romans 8 is a fascinating place to begin, where you just let God speak and and flush out the false statements that have been made about you, right? So verse 1, Romans chapter 8, there's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that true? Yes, it's true. How do we know it's true? Because God said it when God says stuff write it down because it's true right now what the implications are for you and for me then is every time I am shamed every time I feel condemned every time I feel diminished because of a mistake that I made or something stupid I did including being shamed because of some sin I need to recognize that feeling is a lie because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus I've got to push back with truth against those lies. So it's a matter of changing your mind, right? Which is what the the Holy Spirit comes to enable and empower us to do. I've got to work on this an awful lot in the people group that I work with at at the college with women and men who have inaccurate views of their beauty. It's just inaccurate. They don't even see what's there. And so the first place we have to begin is with thanksgiving for the life you've got. So that's, that's a, another strategy, where you begin to say, you know, I thank you for the life that I've got. I stand in front of the mirror every morning, and I say thank you. It's not much, but it's a horse he gave me to ride, so I'm going to ride it. Right? How you all doing? And and you need to do that with intellect, you need to do that with social, you know, you need to do it with emotional well-being, because we're all different. We're all so different. And the other thing you got to stop doing is comparing yourself, both with other people and with yourself. It's none of your business. Life is not a comparison sport. It's meant to be lived. So those are some strategies to start to push back on that, right? So I'm going to invite you to that. Uh, Brian, Jenny, you're going to come back. Oh man, I went longer again. No, we started late. It's not my fault. Okay, good. Here's what I want you to think about. As I was praying about this uh, for tonight and this morning, I began to wonder and and had the sense. And I I don't know if this is true or not, but I I, I I want to risk this. It's possible that somebody is here tonight who, sometime during the course of this last week or so, have really wondered if what I'm saying is true. Not specifically based on on this text, but you laid awake in the middle of the night and wondered if your life was worth continuing to live. Because something happened, because somebody said something, because you've done something stupid again for the 83rd time and you wonder, when in the world am I ever gonna get this right? Why don't I just end it now? And I want you to hear from this text of Scripture that no matter how messed up you think you are, your life is still of inestimable value. You are God's beloved child. Don't give up. Don't quit. And as we move into this next sequence of worship and response, I'm going to invite you just to reflect, perhaps with thanksgiving, perhaps with celebration, Perhaps by making a choice to value the life that God has given you. Places to pray, people to pray with you, let's bow our heads. Lord, as we draw this to conclusion this, tonight, um, I, I don't know what's going on with the people in the room. I don't know what you have spoken to us. Uh, but I pray, oh God, that you will um, give us the courage to live the life that you have given us to stop wishing for a different kind of life or a different life altogether and to really begin to live the life you've given us with the talents, the gifts that are ours. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to set aside the anger, the diminishment of others that this command specifically rules out of court. We want to be your people, O Lord, and recognize that this is what that means. So help us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I cultivate. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the garden, or would like to find out more about the garden church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.